Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today we're going to devote an episode to Dolores O'Riordan, who died a couple weeks ago and inspired an incredible outpouring. I think that uh, Generation X is getting really tired of losing their icons and heroes and wants to remind the world that they slash we really cared about this music, cared about this era, cared about the stars. And David Brown, who wrote an excellent article about Dolores O'Riordan's final days, is here in the studio with me. Hey, David. Hey, Brian. And in a little bit, we're going to talk to Samuel Bayer, who directed the Cranberry Zombie videos, several of their other videos, as well as Smells Like Teen Spirit video and the No Rain video. So, uh, David, what surprised you most in your reporting on Dolores O'Riordan? Well, I think I was reminded all over again of the kind of troubled life she had from an early, from her earliest days. You know, um, they'd been sort of out of the spotlight for a while. The Cranberries, they, they put out an unplugged acoustic album last year, but for the most part, uh, things weren't quite at the uh, intensity level that they were 20 years ago. And so, you know, you kind of forget that she, from from childhood, had some really difficult times and that they seemed to sustain. And, you know, I was also reminded again of how, uh, how impacted she was by fame early on. Again, that was so long ago now. That was 19, you know, 25 years ago was their first album. You kind of forget that she was had all kinds of breakdowns and things very early on. And it, and that they continued for a really long time, which, which helped explain the Cranberries kind of coming in and out of existence as well. I went back and read our early interviews with the Cranberries and with the Dolores, and a few things jumped out at me. You know, this mix of a lot of confidence. She had this amazing quote that when she first auditioned for the guys in the Cranberries, she'd actually seen an ad in the newspaper that she knew they were going to be impressed. And of course they were. I mean, think about, you're just a bunch of basically schlubs, talented schlubs. And this future star with this enormous, incredibly distinctive voice steps to the microphone and you know that your life just changed, you know? And she, you know, she had a voice that she said from the time she was five years old, people recognize you know she was supposed to stand on the desk in class and sing for the other children right but as as you said also a a troubled upbringing in some ways as well troubled uh and 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 just go back to yeah and to go back to your point i mean uh the the very original version of the cranberries when they were called cranberry saw us which is a terrible pun Mm. uh they had a whole different singer a male singer who was leaving and so she just auditioned for this and and they had music and she brought the words and, uh, you know, apparently, like I said, kind of blew them all away right away. And I, d- I think that voice, you know, uh, it, it's, it's, it's interesting to be reminded again of he had such a kind of uh, beguiling kind of siren-like voice. It was so different from so many singers at the time. When you think back, there, there was none of that testosterone rage of a lot of the, of the, of, of the quote-unquote grunge era. And I think that it, she hit such a sweet spot in that, in that the music was sort of of its time, but the voice was mu- was so intimate and, and, and sort of beautiful. They were also a great example of a band who kind of rode the alternative wave of the 90s. And if you listen to something like Linger, their first single, that was before they bought a fuzz pedal. You know, that was more <laughs> in the vein of the past few years of sort of college rock they sounded like the Sundays they're heavily influenced by the Smiths uh, and one of the reasons that their first two albums sound so fantastic is they were produced by Stephen Street uh, the longtime Smiths producer and I mean let's hear Linger to get a sense of Cranberries in their kind of original form 
So that right. and Dreams, as you said, was uh, it's all guitar shimmer and right. the prettier side of her voice. And it's sort of like Enya in a flannel shirt. Kind yeah, of for sure. Very, very pretty, though. And one of the things I did learn in talking to uh, the person who managed them sort of right during the heyday from like 94 to 2000 or so was... You know, Zombie was a very um, calculated, I don't mean that in a bad way, but move on Dolores's part. You know, she she wanted to be, according to him, the biggest star or a huge international star. And she knew that the band had to not just write love songs and appeal to women. They wanted to, She thought they, they had to have male and female fans. And they noticed that, in, I mean, Zombie is a much more intense... Uh, musically intense song than anything they'd ever done and I guess the record company wasn't happy about that and tried to talk her out of it but she was determined that that was the thing and of course they had that great Sam Bayer video where she's painted in gold and and that did prove to be the breakthrough for them and she apparently wrote it without the guitarist Noel Hogan who had been a, a big part of the other songwriting and a big part of the band's sound and it's also she clearly was listening to what was going on in America she was listening to Nirvana and um, let, let's hear Zombie to get a sense of just how fast they changed. It was, you know, it was only a year later, but a lot of things were very different very quickly. We were talking before the show about this issue of the 90s and the 90s alternative explosion and the way it propelled people who ordinarily wouldn't have been big stars into the direct center of pop culture. And a lot of these people, you know, Kurt Cobain is probably the most famous example, but it's really everyone from Fiona Apple to Chris Cornell. A lot of these people, you know, might have had a degree of mental illness, might have just had the completely the wrong personalities and it was rough on them. And I think she's an example of that, right? She seems to be. I mean, the first Cranberries article came out when she was 21. And and they hadn't been around that long. And they were playing pubs and clubs in Limerick, uh, which you know, I've been to. It's a bustling city, but it's it's not New York or anything. And so they, they almost went from zero to 10 very quickly. And the impact on that, you know, someone who was very um, emotionally fragile to begin with, you know, based on so many things that happened in her childhood. And it became apparent really quickly that, I mean, they had to, like, bail out on, on a tour in 96. And, she, you know, the bipolar issues started coming into effect. And the fame uh, aspect, you know, even though part of her obviously really wanted it, like with Zombie, but it sort of came rained down on her it seemed like a lot more and we saw, and we saw the impact on it longer i mean we lost kurt much sooner and she was dealing with it for many many years afterwards and we saw that um that example of that kind of damaged person who's thrust into the spotlight she only realized she was bipolar a couple of years ago it seemed like right which is very late in life to be figuring that out when she'd already had so many problems and you know it was rumored in our first cover in our only cover story on the cranberries <laughs> There's a bit where she denies this rumor of a breakdown. Now, a couple years ago, she actually talked about this breakdown. She describes it as fairly horrific. It sounds worse than bipolar. It sounds almost like a psychotic break. She talks about, she said she was hallucinating like in the movie Jacob's Ladder, which means not great. So she was, again, not suited for this. By the time she had kids, she wanted to step away. She said that she actually had a period where she was so 
far away from music that she wouldn't even sing in the shower, which is an intense thing. That made me kind of sad, actually. Yeah, uh, a lot of things sad. I mean, even though she looked, she talked later about that that early breakdown and how she would just be, feel so lonely, like she was just yanked out of her, ch- you know, semi childhood, young adulthood, and thrown on the road in a bus with bands, and you know, there weren't cell phones, you know, so you wanted to call your family. You had to, you, you didn't know anyone other than the couple guys in the band. You were, the, the you were, you were thrust into the rock apparatus out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, and how kind of disorienting that all was. Well, we should hear "Ode to My Family," which was an early song she wrote. That is all the more poignant when you understand this is just someone who maybe felt like she had to grow up too fast, and not only that, but be thrust into a spotlight she never prepared for. And it's it's one of the most it's it's so emotionally naked. This is not a, a subtle hint in the lyrics. This is directly what the song is about. So let's hear that. This is something we experienced with Chris Cornell recently is that, you know, all these songs sound different now when you have a, a different sense of how real these people's pain and issues were, you know. And, and I think it explains a lot of the outpouring among, as you say, maybe that particular generation of music fan. I think people, they connected to her in a lot of ways. They, they could sense that damage maybe even early on in, in the, the words that she's saying and they related to her in a very deep kind of emotional way that wasn't necessarily always the case with, you know, maybe a Billy Corgan or something. It was it was a different kind of bond. I mean, those first two albums especially, like people carried them with them through their lives. And even if they hadn't listened to them in a few years, they kind of feel them in their bones. But the Cranberries broke up in 2003 and she recorded a couple of solo albums. They came back together in 2009 and actually sort of recaptured, as you said, their their original sound with Stephen Street even. And back in 1996, their third album, they moved away from Stephen Street, tried way too hard to make like a sort of arena rock thing. There's a song called Salvation that actually was a number one modern rock hit that I'd completely forgotten about, frankly. And I think it exemplifies a band kind of losing their way in trends. It'll be good to hear that one. Let's hear it. Also, it's a pretty trite anti-drug song. But but, but even, even even there, like, her voice cuts through that. I mean, she had a very recognizable voice. Right. But back to the last few years, she had an overdose on pills in 2012, had a drinking problem. Her marriage ended in 2014, and she had an incident on a plane where she was arrested. I think she stepped on the foot of a flight attendant. Resisted arrest and headbutted the, the the cop who was trying to do it and uh, ran away from the cop at first. It she was, said it something was like, you, you can't arrest me, I'm an icon. But this was, I think, what prompted her to get the diagnosis that she had bipolar disorder. She was probably in a manic episode. And that's really sad. And, you know, she's had a, a, a rough few years. And then what happened in the last couple years? Because she was she was in the studio. She had some health issues. What was going on? Well, she moved to New York where she had a new uh, boyfriend who was a DJ and they started a band with Andy Work of the Smiths called Dark. 
And so she was kind of working on that. And it was inter- an interesting kind of different sound for her, a little more electronic. She also still had a place in, in Limerick in Ireland, too. And there was a very, I uh, gave a very um, intense interview to an Irish journalist over there in that year in 2014, where she was basically saying, oh, I need help, but I can do it myself. I'm fine, that kind of thing, even though from all intents and purposes, she looked emaciated and, and um, still had bruises on her from the airline. Yeah, that, we didn't discuss that. She also discussed an eating disorder that she was grappling with. She said she experienced childhood sexual abuse. So there was just a, a dangerous cocktail of stuff going on with her. And, and then plus, you read about she had back pain from she, playing guitar on stage, I guess. Yeah, I, another tragic thing was, you know, last year was supposed to be their kind of Big comeback, you know. They put out this unplugged record, and they had a whole tour planned and dates here in the states and Europe. And the whole thing had to be canceled because she had supposedly back pain from yeah from guitar, and it was excruciating. And you know, it seemed like one day she would be up, and next day down. That's what happens. And it also seems like that's what happened, maybe in her last couple of days. You know, people who talked to her the day before she died and a few days before who I've been in touch with all said, you know, she was, she seemed to be in a good space. You know, the Cranberries were starting to make a new record. She had a second, she was in London partly to finish up the second dark record. Um, she had all these kind of projects in the works and, um, the next day, you know, we find out what happened, although we don't fully know it. We won't until April. It's a little chilling how much of this stuff matches the pattern we've seen with with musicians in the past few years, physical pain from touring, possibly untreated mental illness, you know, it all comes together. And I, I don't know if there's anything to be done about all this other than I certainly if I were a manager working with musicians, I would be extremely aware of these sort of occupational hazards, I guess. Yeah, I mean, certainly, gosh, you know, the whole big pharma thing is a whole other aspect to this that... that I'll be exploring in a future Rolling Stone story, as I can say. Yeah, I hope but, so. But um, since we don't have the full autopsy report with her, it's hard to tell what, what exactly happened. But, but, we, it, but it, it seems we, to be leading to a certain place. To, yeah. Exactly. As I say, wouldn't, I don't think it would surprise any of us if, if this was some kind of you know, accidental uh, adventure, as they say. Just before her death, she left a couple voicemail messages for a guy named Dan Waite, uh, a label executive who had set up a collaboration for her with this band, uh, Bad Wolves, a metal band who was doing a new version of Zombie. And I guess that never actually happened. She didn't get to sing with them. But And what's she saying in those voicemails? She apparently left a couple of, like, right after midnight, and she was supposed to go in the studio that, that same day. And according to uh, Dan, who I spoke with, uh, again, he said she sounded like in a good place. She was um, talking about her kids and missing them, but but not in a in a sorrowful way. Um, she was very psyched that Eminem had sampled Zombie on the new album, right? And, and uh, which was a really interesting little um, aside up there. And uh, she even was singing a bit of uh, the Verve hit produced by Bittersweet uh, she, Symphony, Bittersweet yeah. Symphony produced by Youth of Killing Joke, who was also working on the second album, uh, the Dark album with her. So she kind of left that on the message too as a little joke to the producer. So, you know, his, he didn't hear those until much later. And um, he said, you know, it, wasn't, it didn't sound like she was suicidal or anything. Yeah, it's, yeah, but we'll, it's confusing. For it's, sure. very, it's very confusing. It's very confusing. And we have on the phone Sam Bayer, who directed the zombie video and directed many other legendary videos in his career. Sam, how you doing? Hey, how are you? Good. Thanks for being here. Thrilled to be here. Well, not thrilled. I mean, it's sad, but I'm happy to talk to you. 
Yeah, you've did so many great videos and many other things, including the Nightmare on Elm Street in 2010. You, you've had a fascinating career so far. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of it included some incredibly iconic videos in the 90s, and, and one of them certainly was A Zombie by the Cranberries. And I, I wanted to sort of take you back. Uh, first, I, I think of many things in the video. One of them is, is Dolores Reardon in gold paint. But what do you remember about sort of your first encounter with her and the band and how the concept for the video came together and, and all that? Well, you know, I, I think I was, a, you know, the 90s was a great time for music and it was an exciting time to be directing music videos for bands and I was always on the lookout for who's the next big thing or who am I excited about? And I think I had seen Linger, um, which is a black and white video. I thought she was really beautiful and everything else. And I had a friend that worked at Island Records and I think I'd said something like I'd love to do a video for the Cranberries and they sent me the advanced track for um the second record. Yeah. The second record. And um I I heard Zombie and you know I I've been lucky enough to you know I heard the advanced tracks for Nirvana. So it's, it's like it was the same sort of thing like this is amazing, this is electric, I got to do this. And you know, but I got the gist very quickly. I think I did end up talking to her before I wrote the treatment that this was about the problems in Ireland. It had to deal with the IRA. It had to deal with a bomb explosion and the death of a child, and it was pretty heavy. And I, I wrote this treatment. And, you know, I think a lot of times I tried to make music videos that were emotional. Smells Like Teen Spirits like the angry, is a very angry video, and in many respects, Zombies is a very angry video. And um, I told Dolores, uh, I want to do something that matches visually the power of your voice and, and the power of your lyrics. And she loved the treatment and she was willing to be covered in gold paint and I was willing to go to Belfast. (laughs) It was a win-win for both of us. And, you know, I, 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 you know, when she died, it was heartbreaking. And all the guys I've worked with that are, are are no longer here, Bowie and Cornell and, and uh, Kurt and Shannon Hoon from Blind Melon. And I, you know, I, I, she was young. I, I just, it was, it was, it was shocking. But I, I saw the video again and it really kind of choked me up a little bit. Just seeing this young, fragile, powerful voice, I guess, kind of extinguished forever. And that moment in time doing that video was, um, I think it's kind of timeless. It is. I was, you know, it's one of the 250 most watched videos on YouTube of all time, which is quite incredible when you think of how many music videos there are. And even that they're, you know, as famous as they are, they're not, you know, one of the they're not one of the most famous bands of all time. So that, that I think says right. a lot about that video and that song. It's incredible. Well, I'll tell you, um, it's funny. I had, a, I was taking a meeting yesterday about a, uh, a television series and, and, um, I was telling me we, Dolores came up in the meeting, this Hollywood meeting. And I, and we're talking about the video and I told these guys the story, you know, I'll tell it to you now. And it's kind of amazing. So I, I told Dolores, like, if I'm going to do this thing, I'm going to make it authentic. I'm not going to, fake anything i'm not you know, if you watch a lot of music videos they're i don't know music videos sometimes are an art form a lot of times they're not that great um but i said you know if, you, if you're going to do something this uh visceral and intense and everything else let's let's make this as real as possible and i'll fly to belfast and i'll get images of soldiers and i'll go to the uh catholic neighborhoods i'll go to the protestant neighborhoods and whatever and I was younger and maybe kind of stupid and <laughs> maybe a little brave, but I ended up going with an English film crew in the Belfast and was kind of blown away by 
you know, you could go to the pub and have a beer, and then you could walk on the street and have a armored Humvee walk by and track you with a fifty caliber machine gun. And, you know, it was a city under siege. And so I stood outside the, uh, a fort, a fort in um, whatever you call it, uh, uh, you know, where the, where the British Army was with a camera. And, the, and these, these steel gates opened and the, this platoon came out stopping cars and pointing guns at people. And I started filming them. Mm. And it's all in the video. And, yeah. and I followed one soul, and I got separated from my crew, and I was in blue jeans and a T-shirt. And he's not saying a word to me, and he's got an M16 in his hand, and full Kevlar. And I follow him through this neighborhood, and I get a chill up my spine. It's a very strange feeling, like just something was, I don't know. Uh, you're, you're detached watching this stuff. Like, you don't think you're going to get shot at or... You know, the strange empowerment that comes from holding a camera. You think that nothing's <laughs> going to happen to you. And um, it's in the video. He crouched down. Yeah. He, we went through this place, and he crouched down. And he hadn't talked. No one had talked to me, and I really wasn't supposed to be there. And he said, uh, they started talking to me. And he said, what are you doing here? And um, I had, we were supposed to lie. And I was supposed to say I'm doing a documentary about peacekeeping efforts. <laughs> and, I, and, and I don't know. I didn't lie. I said, I'm doing a music video. Oh, really? For who? I go to the Cranberries. He said, Oh, Dolores, she's really pretty. I like her. <laughs> then he then he pointed the M sixteen at me and said, Get the fuck out of here. Oh my god. <laughs> and the shots in the video. So if you look watch the video yeah, I just saw it, yeah. crouching and pointing the gun. And then just really quickly when I walked back uh through that neighborhood, I found out while we were in Belfast that we were targeted by the IRA. And that um, they all had their eyes on me and that um, there is, you know, that the British Army had come in with fake film crews getting people on camera and they all knew who, you know, that, that it, I was just not in the greatest place. But anyways, <laughs> back to Dolores. Dolores loved that. She loved that I, as an American that I experienced something about where she's from and what was going on in Ireland at the time. And so I didn't mean to tell a big long story, but no, it was great. Much about me either. But um, we did, we did the gold cross sequence after Belfast, and you know, I think telling her about that stuff maybe empowered her performance. Well, she was such a captivating screen presence. She could have been probably an actress, but she seemed totally indifferent to this aspect of her talent, and and certainly was never. <laughs> I don't think ever talked about being an actress and seemed happy to be not in the spotlight at all which is very interesting i think yeah and she was a star she was beautiful to photograph she had this amazing voice her vulnerability made her really special and that's really also what broke my heart when i heard that she died because you know what i i i didn't you know i think about these people i'm like what happened to them and everything i didn't know if the cran i didn't think the cranberries were making music anymore and and um you know, she was she was a really special person. You work with the Cranberries on several videos, and what did you notice about her sort of dynamic with the rest of the band? What did you learn about her as a person, including the Ultimate Family video? You know, it, it was it was lead singer syndrome that I think I I worked with all these bands that I don't know where the drummer wanted to be a star and <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, in one case, the drummer and, did become a star, but yes, go on. Right, but you know, with them, what I saw was they were almost like her brothers, that they were, the band was um, so enamored with their, with, with, with um, there was kindness 
They were they didn't fight. They were they, they were they were family. So even and they were proud of their heritage. It's like um, you know, Ode to My Family was done in Dublin in a a bar where we served beer freely, and <laughs> it was a drunken, uh, beautiful experience. That um, and then like in the video, like I shot orphans in a in a some tenement in, in, in Dublin. You know, it was just so damn Irish. Was, yeah, you know. That's all I can. That's what I think of when I think of that stuff. It's just Irish, man, and <laughs> pain and pathos, and and I don't know who's the great Irish poet. Uh, Yeats. And that's what I thought. But yeah. back to your question, they loved each other. That's what I saw. I didn't, and, and I think she had just married her husband. That's uh, right. Duran Duran. He was like the Duran Duran tour manager. Or exactly. Um, um. So there was a little bit of a Hollywood sort of different, you know. As an outsider looking into it, what I saw was someone whose life had changed dramatically very quickly, and her relationship with the band was much more like, these are my brothers, these are my, um, this is my family, and um, and maybe not to delve too deeply into whatever her relationship was with her husband or anything like that but that seemed like more of a, like a hollywood sort of thing in a way i, I don't know well that's interesting i mean in our cover story at the time it was kind of expressed that she was the only one who had a, a kind of entourage about her which included the husband and there was a little bit of a, a separation there once that that marriage happened so i think that's maybe what you're what you saw, what yeah. you're hinting at yeah and and you know and 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 he was protective over her and it was, you know, again, not trying to delve too deeply into it, but like maybe if there was friction or division within the band, it's easy to look at like the rock star cliche. I've certainly lived it and seen it. Perhaps there was some conflict there that I, I, I didn't see, but I, I generally got the sense that we listen to what Dolores says and she writes the music and we make hits and we make money and let's keep it going. What was her relationship to the spotlight and to the idea of making an image for herself and all of that, because as these videos were a large part of what formed people's impression of her as, as an icon. So what was on her mind with that? You know, I, I don't know cause I wasn't in her head, but <laughs> I can say that as, as an image maker, you know, uh, look, I was always looking at whether it was fractured beauty or someone like Kurt that didn't want to be beautiful or, you meet somebody and you're like, you know, and I'm a photographer. I'm like, wow, you photograph amazing. And when I shot the video, she had bleached blonde hair. And it was almost like a Madonna thing going on. And um, from spending time with her, I found some sort of uh, a vibe of like, there was something just fragile about her. That's all I can really say, mm. if that makes sense. She's somewhere in there by her own account. She actually had a, a serious breakdown somewhere in the 94, 95 area. Did you ever see any signs of this as someone who who had a real psychological fragility about her? Did you get close enough to see any of that? A little bit. I mean, you know, I just didn't look at them that way. I looked at them as like the small band from Limerick, Ireland that got thrusted into the spotlight and seemed to be handling it pretty well. That, that's, that's sort of what I... I didn't know anything about the breakdown or anything like that. I do know that, you know, we did have a falling out in the end. I did four videos for them. It was one of the videos I had. I, I cast um, the guy from Lord of the Rings. Elijah Wood. Elijah Wood. So I yeah. cast him in a video, and I did this really beautiful thing where I shot them instead of, free, instead of freak show posters and put her in a red dress. And, 
it was my fourth video. We we built a gold microphone and all this stuff, and she hated it. <laughs> so if there's any, you know, it didn't happen to me very often, but like we had to completely recut the video and and um, we put a bunch of live performance in there. We sort of had a falling out. You know, I, I wasn't happy about it. But um, so when you asked me about problems or whatever, the breakdown, that was 95. So yeah. maybe she didn't like looking at herself the way she looked in the video if I have to mm. think too much about it. Did you ever talk to her after that? No, and I feel pretty bad, actually. I think that they reached out a few years ago to do a video, and I, I don't, I'm not sure we responded. Mm. Before we move on, I wanted to ask about the color palette. You know, in, in Zombie, the scene with the cross... When we look at that now, it screams 90s. I don't know if you have the same reaction. What do you remember about just kind of what the influences were that built up to that look that we now think of as, oh my God, that is a 90s video, music video. That is the only thing it can be, if you know what I mean. Right. Um, listen, everybody had their stick uh, <laughs> back in the day. And I guess it's not really a stick. I had a look and a style and a feeling. And, and I think that, in all honesty, like I was trying, you know, I was, I did, it had this black and white footage. I need to have something with the performance was just as, you know, think about it creatively. It's like, it's, it's just like writing a song. It's like, you know, is the verse and the chorus and the, and the, and the hooks going to take you through a song. So I've got all this documentary footage of soldiers in Belfast and children with guns. What can I shoot? that will be as striking or as powerful or as emotional as that stuff. It's not going to be her on a, you know, it's not going to be the sexy, um, slick performance of them shooting, uh, performing. It has to be something emotional and cathartic. And, and, uh, I thought of Joan of Arc and I thought of crucifixion and, you know, this Irish thing, you know, the, the, the religious influences, the idea of a cross and yeah. sacrifice. And, and she, she was a very devout children. Catholic, so it's perfect, yeah. I think that's what it was, just something very raw and um, and powerful. That's what it always came to. The music was powerful, I wanted imagery. Was, so, yes, and it comes to the colors, like gold paint like a statue, children painted in silver like statues, um, uh, the color red. Uh, looked really powerful next to the black and white photography. So, so it was a very deliberate thing. While we have you in the last few minutes of the show, I, you know, among the many, many music videos and other things you've directed are Nirvana Smells Like Teen Spirit, which is one of the most important visual moments of the 90s across any medium, whether it's TV or movies or anything. And you were fairly inexperienced at this point you think that kurt picked you because you had sort of a, a, a very perhaps unintentionally punk rock reel is that accurate um i think that's a nice way of saying and i think kurt picked me because my reel sucked um <laughs> and maybe there's a punk, there's a punk rock uh attitude about that you know it's funny who knew i mean i didn't know i i had a friend that worked at geffen records and it was the first video i ever directed and and um I begged for a job and they sent me the advanced music and I, I still have that cassette someplace that has come as you are smells like teen spirit and another track on it, this battered cassette that is like the, the, for me, it's the, it's the, um, the catalyst of everything that happened to me and my career and everything. And, and, uh, and then I got invited to see them play at the whiskey and I saw them play. I walked in as they were playing smells like teen spirit in front of like a few hundred people huh. And I'm like, that's the video. And I saw moshing and fury and everything else. 
And just really quickly, the story, because I've told it yeah. lots of times, is, I'll tell this very quickly, is that, um, yeah, it was my first big break. I think the budget was $30,000, maybe $25,000, not a lot of money to do a, a video. And this was the age of Guns N' Roses and Dolphins and CG Dolphins or <laughs> and Michael Jackson, uh, you know, MC Hammer. Like, that, that's what was on MTV. And so nobody thought that the video was going to go anywhere or this was going to do anything. But I'm like, I'm going to make the greatest video I possibly can. And I got uh, the janitor was the janitor for my apartment complex and the cheerleaders were strippers that I found. And the... Um, I brought in a, a pyro guy to do fire, and, you know, I, I tried to build something really beautiful, and then we invited all these kids from the whiskey, and we put flyers around Los Angeles to come down to the set and see them play. Anyways, Kurt hated everything. <laughs> uh, the, the cheerleaders were too pretty. The set, I think he said looked like an aspirin commercial. Um, you know, it wasn't punk to be on set for 12 hours making a music video. <laughs> The kids were drinking and didn't want to be there. And I'm fighting to make the greatest music video of all time. You know? And um, and he wouldn't perform the song. And so there's some amazing stuff. I, and, you know, a friend of mine just did this documentary on, was it, uh, Montage of Heck. Right. And, it was great, um, yeah. Yeah, and he, he we had lunch, and he's like, you know, can you talk to Gaffin? Can we? I'm going to look at the footage. Can you tell me anything about the video? And he, I think he was shocked when he saw the footage because there's not a lot of Kurt singing. You know, I would, I would, I would, Kurt would not sing the song. He would like light a cigarette off the flame bar. He would just stand there, not right, performing the right chords. And he really didn't like me. And I finally, <laughs> um, you know, and it was terrifying and it made me angry and everything else. We, we, we didn't like each other. And I finally went up to a big record executive in my 20s and went up to a big executive and said, listen, you can have the greatest music video of all time or no video. You just got to tell Kurt to perform the song a couple times. And he sang the song with this venom and this anger. He only did it a few takes. And it was amazing. And, and, and I got to give him credit. Even at the end, I said, please don't put your face within a foot of the camera because I can't get focused. And so at the end of the video, when he's laughing, mm. that's him fu That's him fucking with me. Like, <laughs> put his face in the camera. <laughs> and um, so after all that, I'm like, great, we have a video. And um, and someone came up to me, the AD said, uh, you know, the kids who, have been, who hated me too and had been there all day and were <laughs> drunk said they wanted to destroy the set. I'm like, eh, I looked around. I'm like, what can they destroy? They can destroy the drums and the guitar and it's not my stuff. Um, some of it was my stuff and I'm like fine destroy it what do I care and um, the kids and Kurt started thrashing the set and I'm looking at it and it's lit beautifully I'm like oh man that's really amazing and uh, we have a full mag of film in the camera and again we got 400 feet I put it in slow motion I shot it that was the end of the video incredible and Sam Bear, in the couple minutes we have left, maybe you can deliver the one-minute version of the origin of the B-Girl, because incredibly, you also directed the No Rain video. Okay, one-minute version, B-Girl. <laughs> uh, I saw the album cover. I saw this girl on the cover, and um, I think a girlfriend of mine at the time, We, uh, I wrote a bunch of ideas, and I think we talked about... Uh, I said, what if the B-Girl came to life? What if we told a story about a fairy tale where... where 
this kid's last at at school run so kind of like alternative methodology you know what alternative music was yeah um the outsiders taking over so and she runs through los angeles and she finds comes to an open field and finds uh, people like her so it was a a metaphor if you will for what alternative music was and and was really pretty how was that? That was 30 seconds. Incredible. Sam Bear, it's, you know, th- thank you so much for talking with us. It's truly amazing to consider how much of what we think of as the 90s, our memories of the 90s, you shaped as a music video director. Uh, so really appreciate it. My pleasure, and thanks, guys. Absolutely. So this has been Rolling Stone Music Now. We were talking about the life and music of Dolores O'Riordan, and we'll be back next week at 1 p.m., here on SiriusXM's volume, channel 106. In the meantime, download us as a podcast, subscribe to us as a podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, and maybe leave us a nice review. We could use it. And in the meantime, we will be back next week, and we'll see you then. Bye.